And that was the most uncomfortable thing I've ever photographed. It was in essence an act of prostitution under the influence of crack cocaine. The guy who hired the prostitute knew very well and known him, been photographing him for over a year. Obviously something changed in that sort of session. That was actually the heart, like my hands were shaking. My hands were shaking. You're listening to She Does, a series that features women working in media, all forms of media. We wanted to know how they arrived at where they are today. So we asked and found out and thought you might like to know too. I'm Elaine. And I'm Sarah. And today we bring you an interview with Lyric Cabral. She's an award-winning photojournalist that focuses on documenting underreported social issues. Her work has appeared in The Nation, The Village Voice, National Geographic, and The Huffington Post, and is held in collection at the Smithsonian Institution, the Studio Museum of Harlem, and the Whitney Museum of American Art. In this episode, we learn about the steps Lyric has taken in her career as a photojournalist and how those steps and techniques have translated into making her first feature film, Terror. This film captures the unraveling of an active FBI counterterrorism sting operation and the aftermath that occurs when the target of the investigation realizes that a government informant is setting him up. The film has been billed as the first film to document on camera a covert counterterrorism sting. It's been 12 years in the making, and having Lyric on the show is exciting for a couple of reasons. Elaine, we're both dot filmmakers in the middle of big, messy projects, and there's no better way to jumpstart the creativity than to hear from somebody who is just coming out of a similar situation. Totally. Lyric is on the other side of things with her film. Along with her co-director, David Felix Sutcliffe, she'll be taking the film to Sundance this year to compete in the U.S. dot category. Terror is screening six times throughout the festival, from January 24th to the 31st. Next Wednesday, February 4th, at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, after all the Sundance dust has settled, Lyric will join us live on Google Hangout, and you'll get to ask her your questions. So let's get started, and let's start from the beginning. Lyric grew up in Washington, D.C., a city that she says launched her into journalism. She often observed people on the street, but she didn't actually pick up a camera until 10th grade. She says it was out of sheer boredom. My mom insisted that I sort of stay after school to get my homework done, but I didn't want to do homework after school. And ironically, the only thing open besides the gym where all the crew kids hung out with all the ergs, which I was not about, was the darkroom. I am not familiar. What's an erg? <laughs> an erg is the rowing machine that people in crew use, Sarah, to train. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I'm from Missouri, and, and crew was really never our thing. So, <laughs> Anyway, the point is, Lyric did not hang out with the crew kids or the ergs. She was all about the darkroom. And I loved it. As soon as I took my first photography class, I was sort of introduced to the work of Gordon Parks. And literally, I can say that as soon as I saw Gordon Parks' photographs, I realized that, like, photojournalism was a really powerful medium. And I was really struck by the humanity captured in Gordon Park's pictures. Gordon Parks was a self-taught artist who became the first African-American photographer for Life and Vogue magazines. 
He was also a film director of The Learning Tree, based on a novel he wrote, and Shaft. If you don't know his work, seek it out. He was photographing such bleak situations, but honestly, without a caption, you wouldn't even know that his, the subjects were in such dire poverty. Or There's a photo he took in the welfare office, and without the caption, it could have easily been a family at home. And so I really appreciated that level of sensitivity that could be brought to documenting the world. He was prolific, and although he passed away in 2006, Gordon Parks has had an ongoing role in Lyric's life and career. And we'll return to him later. But before we do... We asked Lyric what she loves most about photography, and her response was the trust required to take the photograph. So it's not so much about the frame for me, because a lot of photographers I see chimping just like, like you look at them when they're shooting, you can tell you just shot 150 frames, and you probably didn't get one good picture. And I'm sort of the opposite. I sometimes feel very hesitant to document. And it's often because I get myself into these incredibly crazy situations where I have no business being. What's been the most uncomfortable situation you've ever been in? You're like, wow, this this may not be appropriate for me to, or like, how did I get here? Actually, the first photography story I ever had published was a story called Old Habits. And this was a story I started working on in photo school. It was about elderly addiction. So basically I was in this single room occupancy hotel in Harlem. Everyone that lived there was 55 and older and most people smoked crack cocaine. And so I was working in this building for a little over a year and kind of thinking I was done with the story. Um, thought I had documented everything. And I'm talking to my mentor, Frank, who, you know, just talking through the story. He goes, well, is there any sex? And I was like, yeah. And Frank is like, well, you must shoot it. He's a French man. He's like, you must shoot it. And that was like, oh, my God. His thing is, if someone trusts you enough to give access, sometimes not taking it, you, you lose your access. You know, you've been there so long, do you not want to go? Why are you going to say you don't want to go? Like, he just made it seem like I had to go. And she had been shooting in the building so frequently that she knew how this would all go down. And what happens is, like, the first of the month, a lot of these people get public assistance. When they would get their checks, they would cash their checks and go get a prostitute. And the prostitution was fueled by crack a small room, maybe like 20 by 12. I tried to, like, I stood on a chair. I stood back against the wall, like, as far away as I could be, like, literally uh, floating above the situation. And it was, it was incredibly awkward, but just had conversations with folks before and after. But yeah, it was a very, very hard situation to make pictures in. I mean, I'm glad I did because they trusted me too, and they knew I wasn't going to, like, exploit them or, or show them in a really demeaning way, but it was very, very hard and was just to take. Look, to date, that's probably the hardest thing of photographs. And what was even weirder about that scenario is the prostitute, as we're walking to the room, like where I know I'm about to photograph this act of prostitution, I meet her daughter on the street. She has a daughter who's like 19. And I was like, oh my God. You know, so it, these are like the moral situations you find yourself in. But if you're a conscious journalist, if you're sensitive, you know, if this is part of the story that you must tell, that these are conditions that must re be revealed publicly, you have to do it.
so I want to transition to a big question. How do you choose stories and projects to work on? This is something that many of us, especially those of us who are independent producers, struggle with. Deciding on what stories to tell and what forms they should take is challenging, especially when the possibilities seem endless and the funding is slim. But Lyric says she's had a clear vision of what she is drawn to for quite some time. If I've seen a story before, unless I think I can do it incredibly different and from a more compelling angle, I actually won't do it. And that just comes from a mentor I had. Frank Fournier is like my, one of my photojournalism mentors. And for years when I would pose a story, Frank would say no. Like everything, no, 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 no. And after like six years of Frank saying no, I finally got why. And it's just because like if something, if you've seen something, is it really worth your time? And ultimately what he shared with me is like, you wanna be able to report a story that God forbid you don't get funding, God forbid it take you eight years. You don't want someone else to be able to come in and access your story. You know, and that, that is the case. You will not find this informant. You will not find the target. If this film took 20 years, I'm confident that the subject will still be inaccessible. So I kind of look for stories like that. Stories that are like in critical need of being told and also stories that are very hard to access or sort of that the access will be the highlight of the story. But sometimes a story chooses you. That was the case with Terror, a documentary project 12 years in the making. Terror, as we mentioned before, is about a former member of the Harlem chapter of the Black Panther Party, who for the past 22 years has been working for the FBI as a counterterrorism informant. The film comes from a very strong place of personal obligation. This all started when Lyric was a freshman in journalism school. At the age of 19, she got to know her neighbor. They became friends, and over the next four years, they met in his apartment to chat and hang out. But one day, he dropped a bomb on Lyric. He confessed to her that he worked for the FBI and that the apartment that they had been hanging out in for the past four years was wired. The FBI was paying for it. It was a safe house designed to catch terrorists. And to make matters worse, he was on two active cases, one international and one domestic. I was a journalism student. My neighbor confessed to me that he worked for the FBI. I was also on tape. So I felt as much betrayed as like, oh my God, this is a good story. But the journalist in me knew that I was not equipped at the age of 19 as a freshman to report on counterterrorism well. This is the best part of Lyric's story to me. To be smart enough at the age of 19 to know that you are not prepared to cover this type of topic and then to go and spend 10 years of your life studying and photographing these national security cases, which would eventually prepare her to take on the original story of the informant she had met, it's brilliant. It's so inspiring. And when any other national security case would happen in the Tri-State area that she could access, she would be there. She covered the 2009 Newburgh 4 case, the 2007 Fort Dix 5 attack plot, both of which were cases dealing with FBI entrapment. Lyric sought out the families and tried to document their perspective and experiences. She went to trial. She got to know the defendants in national security cases, civil liberty activists, prosecutors, terrorism defendants. She was persistent. She stayed with the story, and she met some great contacts. I was literally documenting the Newburgh 4 case in front of the courthouse. Everyone was being paid. There's like New York 1, ABC, NBC, CNN, and me. 
you know, everyone else was producing news that came on TV that night. Mine was just, wait, it was hanging around for a very long time. and It was very uncomfortable. And every day these people would see me come. And the newscasters, like Dean Menninger, particularly from New York One, was very encouraging. I didn't have a press pass, but these people saw me come every day. And they asked me what I was doing. And they, that gave me a job opportunity. But that was a hard story to pitch because my angle was that they were entrapped. The first publication that published those photos was The Nation. And then the second one was The Village Voice and then Color Lines. And I, I'm realizing more and more that your pitch has to be dominated by your opinion. Like no one wants to sort of hear the facts of your story. They want to hear your analysis of your story. And it took me a very long time to understand that. Because at first when I was pitching the Newberg story, I was like, oh, it's about these four black guys who were accused of bombing a synagogue. That didn't fly. When I went in there and said, this is a story about entrapment. It's a story about an African-American family whose, son, whose only son, who was Muslim, everyone else is Christian, was entrapped by an FBI informant. You know, that's when people listen to me. So when I was sitting in the room and Lyric told me the story, I immediately flashed back to some of my first journalism classes about how to be objective and how you weren't supposed to put, you know, your opinion and your personality and these things into your news stories. And I can just, um, I can just imagine some of my journalism teachers, you know, gasping at this subjective idea, but it's so true. And especially going on to study film, like Sarah, you know, it's kind of hard to keep your personality out of documentary film. Yeah, I mean, in, in film, it's hard not to have your opinion come through. In fact, many will argue there's no such thing as truth and that you should own that fact, the fact that there is no truth. Um, but but simply like just holding your camera and deciding on an angle to shoot someone can influence the way the audience like receives and considers the subject. So there's like inherent bias and subjectivity. We could debate it all day, I'm sure. But yeah, definitely. So Lyric covers these big cases. She gets her street cred in the field. But when did she finally return to working on this huge story waiting to be told, what we now know as terror? Well, after a decade of reporting, she felt she had completed her research. She understood the landscape, and she was ready to tackle the story of the informant. But she needed a team, specifically a filmmaker. Lyric met David Felix Sutcliffe, a director and cinematographer at the Harlem after-school arts program, Truce. Lyric was teaching photography, and David was teaching video. They first collaborated on a film about one of their students at Truce, who was arrested by the FBI and accused of being a potential suicide bomber. The film, titled Adama, took six years to complete. It's about a Muslim girl from Harlem who became one of the youngest people swept up by the FBI in a terrorism investigation when she was just 16. She was released after six weeks with no charges, but she struggled to keep her family together when her father was deported. Adama was funded by ITVS and aired on PBS World in 2011. This film, along with Lyric and David's experiences, allowed them to prove their trust to the two subjects of terror. So when David really said, you know, this could be a great documentary, that's when I called him after 12 years. I mean, we had been in touch, but not with the aim of documentation. So after 12 years, we called him, and he said, I'm on an active case. I'm in Pittsburgh. Come out. But I already had his trust, and that was critical. You know, so the trust in combination with understanding the nuances of what I would report 
I think, is the combination of what brought us to terror now. We're doing the springtime. Yeah. Now, 1967. That time I was a little fly kid, fly clothes, smoking reefer, you know what I mean? No more brothers in jail. Oh, gonna I really enjoy interviewing. If I had to say a favorite part of the process, just because I'm naturally curious and I really like getting information from people and like, that, that sort of process of like you come in with I need all these questions, your subject comes in with like they're, they're kind of in a bad mood or you just have to negotiate so much with the interview and I, it's, such a, it's such a test every time and I just love it. And my least favorite part of the process I would say is editing because I'm such a strongly visual person that I love collecting material but I just don't like sifting through it. Like, I like pulling selects. I like, like, I'll remember bites in the interview that, like, resonate with me, but that's all I'll do. <laughs> I can pull said bites, but I really, I really, like, love working with an editor, someone that can sort of comprehend the vision that I'm trying to establish with the material. It's very hard for me to just sit at a computer and edit. This project seems particularly challenging to edit because all these things did happen in the past. So how are you guys navigating... Um like the use of archival and... I did most of the archival research. I love doing archival research, but I'm actually really proud of the archival in Terror. Um, I think we have a lot of things that people probably haven't seen, um, including footage from the Black Panther Party, and as well as sort of the, the Black Muslim presence in Brooklyn in the 80s. I think we have a lot of rich archival dealing with that. Lyric says having a co-director has been convenient in sensitive times. To be more specific, a white male co-director because people are just not used to seeing people like me tell stories. When I get there, it's like, who are you? Who do you work for? It's a million questions that a white guy with a camera wouldn't have. But in terror, we use this to our advantage because there are times when it's easier for me to just shoot and I will not be questioned. And there are times when I know that David is the person if we want to actually get that material that needs to film it. We were trying to get our Khalifa, who's the target of the investigation. Khalifa is the character in terror who's being followed by the informant. He was going to morning prayer at the mosque, which happens at like 4.35. And so the, the thought was, let's get Khalifa at prayer. And so I actually had to go to work. And so David went over to Khalifa's house that morning, and he saw an FBI arrest. He drove up. He saw black vehicles with tenant windows. He saw a lot of activity. He knew instantly that Khalifa was being arrested. And if you watch the footage, it's an incredibly fascinating interaction between David and the FBI. Everyone's white. You know, and, and sort of they politely ask David, sir, are you a resident of this building? And David says, no, I am not. And the FBI agent goes, well, you must talk to the proper authorities who control the building. Lyric believes that this interaction would have gone a bit different if she was the one holding the camera. As a journalist, you have to be smart enough to know the limitations of the body that you're in and just learn how to work around them. Unfortunately, because of the body you're in as a journalist, because I'm a woman sometimes, because I'm black sometimes, I just am not going to get access. So um, that's not going to stop me. I'll just, you know, I have to partner with people who are able to help in securing that access. How do you feel African-Americans are represented in your field and how could it be better? And how does being an African-American maybe influence or maybe not influence the work and that you choose and um, 
Does it have anything to do with the lesser told stories that you're that you're speaking about? Well, I think there is a pressing need for more diversity um, in documentary, both in photojournalism and in documentary filmmaking, because really what is suffering is the public, the audience. When we have a lack of diverse content producers, it seems to monopolize the opinion that's presented. Because I am fortunate to be an insider, you know, in dealing with African-American communities, I feel the obligation to tell those stories well, because I, I can already get inside. But not only can I get inside, I can sort of understand the cultural nuance that's lesser presented. And, and hopefully it will help me to make a more complete portrait of these communities. What's going through your mind when you're framing a photograph and like waiting? Something often happens when you have a camera out is that like, you know, people will look at it at first, then they'll ignore it. But I like kind of love that moment when they when they have ignored the camera but choose to look at it. And it, it, it rarely happens. It's so subtle. But it's like you become fly on the wall. You know, people totally forget you're there. They they do their thing. But there comes a moment when they want you to see. And I love taking the frame in that moment. It's like they've ignored the camera for 20 minutes. I'm continuing to stand there. And the thing is, when I'm waiting for a picture, I don't necess- I don't stare into the viewfinder. I'll look at you. Like, I'll try to look at the person, the subject. Look, you know, instead of just being immersed in the camera. And so it's kind of this weird dance. But then, like, sometimes when they look at the camera, that's it. That's when I feel like it's that joint moment where you both want to make something. In addition to terror, Lyric is working on a long-term project. It's a book called USA versus We the People. It's a collection of portraits of family members of those who have been accused of terrorism crimes. And so it's just a document in one place, sort of the, the collective effects of our national security policies post 9-11. Because I, you know, there's a lot of portraits right now, people from Albania, from Guinea, from Lebanon, from Jordan. And the, like when you look at the diversity of all these portraits, the only thing that unites these people is that they happen to live in America and they're Muslim. So hopefully it will cause people to think about the public face of a quote-unquote threat. But with this being a topic that doesn't seem to have a clear end date, how will she know when to stop? How do you know when you are done documenting? It's no secret that the subject's lives continue after the cameras stop rolling. And knowing this, it's tempting to continue to be there and document. Her goal? is to get a diverse sample of terrorism cases since 9-11. You know, there's a lot of cases. So whenever I feel that, almost like you're collecting data scientifically, whenever I feel that my sample is representative of the whole enough that it can stand alone, that's when I'm done, at least for photography. But I can also tell you that I am the type of journalist that I'm never done. Like, I, I don't drop in and drop out. Every person I've ever photographed, with the exception of Red Jackson, who's now dead, I keep in touch with, whether they get a Christmas card from me or like I try to call. I just really try to stay in touch with people because I really don't like that feeling of like I come in, I document something of you, I publish it and then I just leave you alone and you're left with the consequences of whatever may happen because you're now public. You know, so I I'm never quite done. I'm never quite done. I really respect this about Lyric. I feel like So often we hear about filmmakers and photographers going in for their story and not really considering what to give back. And I know I personally feel strongly about keeping up connections with people that I have documented, but 
I also know it's not realistic in some situations or necessary. I feel the same way. I mean, in documentary, we spend so much time living with our subjects as we film them and then living with them all over again in the edit room. But we stick with them because we saw their story worth telling in the first place and we truly care about them. So that doesn't, and in my opinion, shouldn't go away just because the project is complete. So does Lyric have any advice to give us? I would say I'm very old school in terms of my journalism advice. When I was sort of coming up in school, they told us that we need to do everything. You know, you need to be the type of journalist that's adaptable. You need to be able to shoot video. You need to be able to edit. You need to be able to photograph. I don't, I don't think that's true. I think you need a beat. Old journalists, you know, that used to work for newspapers, everyone had a beat. Like, I'd say my beat is national security. Like, I know those families. I know the prosecutors. I really think you need a beat because you need, like, if you look at Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald, their journalism is only so rich because that is their beat. All of their sources, Jeremy Scahill, like, they just have, that's all that they get is prime sources from national security reporting because that is their beat. You know, so I would encourage people to really find something they're truly, truly interested in and make that your area of expertise. Not saying exclusively focus in that, but I think if you can show that you can solidly cover this one area and that you have sources and news stories always coming from this one area, that is going to truly be an asset for you. So remember when Lyric mentioned how Gordon Park's work inspired her at the age of 15? Well, there was something about his work in Harlem that has always stayed with her, particularly a photo essay he did in 1948 for Life magazine. It was about a Harlem gang leader, Leonard Ray Jackson, and it turns out Lyric and Parks share a special connection with Jackson. And interestingly enough, why, like, I have that personal connection to the essay, I'd always loved the work. And now, actually, I'm in a show with Gordon Parks and in a book with Gordon Parks. Um, for I photographed Red Jackson in 2006. That's probably the highlight of my career, if I've had one thus far, is like Gordon Parks was a singular reason that I picked up a camera. 15 years after I started photographing, the Gordon Parks Foundation saw my photos of Red Jackson online and called me. And my photos of Red Jackson are now published with Gordon Parks' photos of Red Jackson. And the exhibit is traveling now. Amazing. Like, what was your response? How did you feel when they, when you got that email to call? Oh my God, I was just, I was amazed. Like, I, I couldn't believe it. It was kind of like confirmation that I'm in the field I'm supposed to be in. It was confirmation to me that, like, I'm making the type of work. I'm on the right path. Visit our website, shedoespodcast.com, for more on Lyric and the show. And don't forget, Wednesday, February the 4th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to join us on our live Google Hangout with Lyric, co-hosted with our partner, Filmmaker Magazine. Actually, Elaine, can you explain how the whole Google thing works? Yeah, so if you're around your computer and available at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you click on a link in the Lyric post on our website at shedoespodcast.com. It'll take you to a live Google Hangout where you can ask your questions right then and there. If you're not available then, tweet your questions or email your questions with the hashtag SheDoesHang, and we will ask them for you.
The music you heard in today's episode is by First Rebirth, Ganji, The Passion Hi-Fi, Marco Rapwurst, and Ananon. And sound design is by our talented friend, Billy Waraznik. That's Billy Waraznik. But thanks for trying, Sarah. Join us in two weeks for our third episode, which features Anna Sale, host of popular WNYC podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. Thank you for listening. And if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to us on iTunes so we can bring you more of it. You know, so I, I'm never quite done. I'm never quite done.